Business Matters in association with ATU Donegal Faculty of Business. Now is the time to realise your potential by enrolling on the part-time degree in business. Only three years with one evening per week on campus and another online. Open up your future by contacting the faculty office on 9186206 or visit lyit.ie today. I'm Kieran O'Donnell. You're welcome to Business Matters. My guest this week is the former Managing Director of Fruit of the Loom and former Chair of the International Fund for Ireland, William McCarter, who now works as an independent advisor. Four days after graduating from Trinity College in Economics and Political Science in 1969, he began his Master's Degree at Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Well, he came home in 1971 to work in the family's underwear-making business, W.P. McCarter, and the following year, he became Managing Director at the age of 25, following the death of his uncle, Wally. McCarters signed a deal with Fruit of the Loom in 1987, and it became a major employer in Donegal and Derry during a 20-year period. At full capacity, Fruit of the Loom employed 3,000 people, producing 1 million t-shirts and 400,000 sweatshirts per week. Wally, you are very welcome to the programme. Thanks very much indeed, Kieran. Very pleased to be here. Wally, when I was travelling down uh, and going over my head in terms of where we might start with your own story, we'll probably start at the beginning and where it all started for yourself growing up in Derry. Well, I, I, I did. Uh, our family grew up in Derry, uh, as did my father's family, actually. Uh, and um, I had a very good childhood, very happy childhood. Uh, my mother is from uh, outside Mullen Town, and for us, hard hard for people to believe these days, but for us, all, our holidays were always on the family farm outside Mullen Town, and it came sort of as a surprise to us that people went to different places and so on because we got quite used to the family farm and indeed my great aunt had a the end house of the Coast Guard station in Mullen Head uh, and we used to go there as well so it was a very happy childhood I must say and uh, I uh, then went on to college and Trinity College in Dublin where I did economics and political science I was fortunate enough to go get accepted by the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, or MIT, uh, where uh, immediately after Trinity, I, in fact, three days after finishing my final exams, I started at MIT, where I did two years at the Sloan School at MIT and got my master's. And much to my surprise, uh, I ended up working in Bunkrana fairly straight, fairly straight away because my father, who had always kept, I have two brothers and myself and the family, and my father had always said, this business is far too hard uh, for people, so for anybody, so you're going to do something else. But as it happened, uh, he wrote to me six months before I was due to finish in MIT, and he said, you know, your uncles are not too well, there's four brothers of them. And um, he says, uh, and the business is not too well. Uh, if uh, you're ever thinking of coming back, you should come back. So I wrote back to him and said, well, I'll come back for six months. And uh, I'm still here. And the family business was underwear. Yes, the family business had started out in 1932 when my uncle, who had learnt the underwear and knitwear trade in a very large company in Derry, 
fella went to a football match. He was a great fan of Derry City. And he went to a football match on a day that he shouldn't have gone. And he didn't get on very well with the boss's son. So he got his cards or his P45 or whatever it was called in those days. And my grandfather apparently said to him, you're never going to work for anybody else anyway. So why don't you think of setting up on your own? And he knew the underwear business very well. And between him and my grandfather... Uh, this is about 1930, uh, they reckoned that uh, there would come tariff protection of small companies in what was then the Free State or the 26 counties. And both of them reckoned if they set up in in the Free State, they'd get tariff protection from the much larger, generally English firms around Nottingham and Leicester. So uh, my uncle persuaded six people to come from uh, and in those days, jobs were very hard to find. He persuaded six people to come from Derry to Buncrana with him to start W.P. McCarter and, Com- and Company, or Coy Limited. Uh, the W.P. comes from my uncle, who was called William Phillips McCarter. And uh, that's how it started. And they were looking for a brand name, so they thought, since it was a new state and all that, uh, the brand name National would be a good brand name. And lots of people, certainly of a certain vintage, will remember National brand, kids' underwear, and indeed ladies' and men's. So it was a fair gamble on reflection back then? It was, but my uncle uh, was a a risk-taker and he was a entrepreneur very much in his own right and he persuaded two of his brothers his uh, my father who joined him or my my uncle um, Bertie uh, joined him I think uh, within a few months uh, he he had had an office job in Derry uh, and he joined joined him to take care of the office and accounts and uh, my father had just gone through the tech in Derry in those days and he joined them on the production side and came in to started as a knitter in <laughs> and was all that having an influence uh, on you growing up Willie? It, it was, uh, I must say, uh, because those are very, I mean, reading, reading the history and hearing the family story, it was very difficult times for a lot of people. And, of course, my uncle was out of a job simply because he'd gone to Derry City football match. And, uh, you know, he hadn't got a job. And uh, to start a new business in those days was uh, quite a, well, still a very enterprising thing to do. But uh, him and the two brothers... And then they had a fourth brother uh, who had become a merchant sea captain. And he got married to a lady from Glasgow. And uh, I think it one of the biggest career changes that I've ever heard of because he went from steering ships uh, all around the world to selling ladies' underwear in Dublin. And that's quite a, quite a contrast. Quite a change. So, Willie, they st- started up with six people. How did that business evolve and develop from then? Well, I think it, it developed. I mean, the thirties were a very difficult time, and uh, but they they developed the, the national brand uh, underwear. And my uncle was very keen on exporting, so they would have exported, and and they made some uh, um, night dresses and that as well. Uh, my, my uncle would have uh, exported. Uh, 
to to va- various places, but m- the main market was the w- was the the Free State or the twenty six counties, and then the war was a very difficult time for them, um, very very difficult as it was for everybody else, very difficult to get supplies. I mean, there's a great family story of my fa- father being very friendly with uh, an, an undertaker in in Muff called Jim Lynch, uh, and uh, my my father was hunting for. Uh, for fabric now their their raw material was cotton yarn uh, but they couldn't get it so my father was talking to Jim Lynch and uh, he he said well look I got a lot of shroud cloth and I'll uh, you know we'll, we'll do a deal so my my father bought a lot of shroud, brown shroud cloth and they made women's and kids knickers out, out of this that apparently had the attribute that every time he moved and them they squeaked <laughs> so but it was very difficult they they had to use turf uh, and uh, and all that because no coal and uh, then after the after the war there was a uh, Kind of a boom, and uh, they got into uh, ma- making uh, using the underwear technology ma- in- into uh, women's uh, sort of not quite t-shirts, but women's fashion tops that that were like what was coming out of Paris in uh, much more expensive fabrics, and uh, they, they they then got into dyeing and dyed those. So um, things developed from from there, and. Sorry, well, just to go back slightly, you mentioned going to third level. Was third level always uh, in your own life plan? And the other thing is, what was the attraction of economics and politics? Um, I, I suppose I, I, very, I always very interested uh, from, I suppose, early days and, how, you know, how things, how countries worked, and uh, how companies worked, and that sort of thing, and I was also quite very interested in the in the politic political end of things. So, uh, and I, I decided I wanted to go to Trinity, even though I was seventeen before I was ever in Dublin, and um, I don't regret the choice one one bit. Uh, very exciting time to be there. How big a change was the city of Dublin? to the city of Derry for a young teenager? Uh, it was very big change, very, very big. Uh, <clears throat> uh, even though Dublin uh, probably would have been regarded as, uh, it wasn't next or near as cosmopolitan a place, but compared to Derry, it, wa- it was. Uh, and uh, I must say I enjoyed it tremendously. And when you graduated uh, from Dublin, you were in America shortly after it? Yeah, four days afterwards I was at MIT. You, you didn't hang around, will you? No. <laughs> well, it's just the way things worked. Uh, uh, I, I came up to Derry, uh, saw the folks, back to Dublin, and off I went. And how was America? Uh, I only thought I worked hard in Trinity. When, <laughs> when I got to MIT, I realised you, you've bitten off something here that you better get down to it or... Uh, was America what you thought it was going to be, or was it totally different to what you were expecting? I suppose it was in part it was what I, but it was very very different to what I'd, I'd been used to. Although of course I, when I was a student, I got a J one uh, visa, so I'd worked uh, for a summer in New Hampshire. So I, I kind of you know had an idea what what was happening, but MIT was a very different. Uh, 
kettle of fish. And had you plans to make a new life there, or was the fact that your father indicated that you were required to come back uh, the, the main reason why you came back and stayed back? Well, I, I, I was very taken with America and, and thought quite a few times, I'll, I'll stay here. And, uh, you know, one part of me said, you know, the family business would be interesting, but I sort of veered from one one thought to another. But my father didn't write to me very often. He wasn't a very demonstrative man, although a very, very good guy. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't swap him for anything or wouldn't have swapped him for anything. But uh, he, he wrote to me in his own inimitable hand. <laughs> when I got the letter, I thought, the least I could do is promise <laughs> do it for six months to see how I get on. So you came back to Bonkrana in 1972, is that correct? No, 71, September 71. And you're here since? I'm here since, yeah. So you took on the role of managing director, well, is that correct? Yeah, what happened w- was I, I came back uh, and uh, tried to, you know, got involved with various aspects of the business, um, which wasn't in great shape. And uh, <clears throat> we... Um, w- w- We'd got we'd got in touch with with uh, a company in London called Associated Apparel Buyers, and just shows you how the fashion business works. They they had identified they very big American connections, and they'd identified there was a tremendous craze for what was called in those days pointel. Now pointel was actually made on on women's uh, uh, underwear machines that created little diamonds for women-shaped vests and so on. And it was really women-shaped vests that this pointel, they were, that's what they wanted. And I remember uh, we we had sampled them and uh, my uncle in Dublin and I met them in my uncle's office in St. Andrew Street. And uh, <clears throat> they said... Uh, we could take a thousand dozen a week of these. Now, a thousand dozen was a very big order, and I knew that we could do with it. So I rang up my father, and in those days, it was what I call the Wells Fargo uh, telephone system, where you dialed 1-0 in, in Dublin and asked for Buncrana 2-7, and eventually you got put through. So I explained to him they wanted a thousand dozen, and he said straight off the top of my head, because they had, a razor sharp production man he said look we can only do those those RTR machines as they were and I think there may have been a couple of the originals that my uncle had brought from Derry or got when he moved from, from Derry uh, he, I remember him saying we can only do 50 dozen a week I said dad they need a thousand dozen and we'd love them to get a thousand dozen a week and he said well look Hang on, I'll ring you back. And of course, he was a great man for when he told you he'd ring you back. He'd, so half an hour later, he rings back and he said, "Well, look, tell them if they can get, if they can accept diamonds with, you know, kind of the little holes filled in a bit, uh, and they can accept side seams uh, and not uh, not seamless tubular garments. Uh, we'd probably get up to a thousand dozen, you know. But he said to me then, you know, you have to use four RLGT machines. I barely knew what he was talking about. They said, we could do a thousand dozen if they accept that. So I remember saying to Nigel French was the name of the guy, I said, well, we can do a thousand dozen provided you can accept this, this, this. He said, never mind about that. 
here's your order. <laughs> and that set us off uh, and gave us some cash flow that we desperately needed. And did that necessitate uh, upscaling your workforce? Uh no, it would be probably fair to say that it gainfully employed people that we were trying to hang on to. So we had about 150 people in those days, and uh, certainly that provided a, a, a backbone for for the for the business. But it came about quite uh, almost by accident, uh, as a lot of things do. And can you talk me through uh, the progress uh, of the company then through the 80s, really, and I suppose the establishment of Fruit of the Loom? Well, um, <clears throat> we um, you asked me about how I became managing director. I became managing director because my uncle, WP, unfortunately died in May 1972. And my other uncle said to me, look, uh, you know... <laughs> We know you're only 25, but there's a job to be done here, and if you if you take it on, we'll back you. So <laughs> there must have been some faith, I think. <laughs> what were your thoughts when you took on that role? I must say I was in fear and trepidation because, uh, you know, my father was not somebody who uh, suffered fools gladly, including me. <laughs> in fact, he, all my, my, well, in latter days, uh when things had got a lot bigger, this is before Fruit of the Loom, uh, he'd come into my office and he was ha- semi-retired, but he lived then beside, he'd come from, from Derry with my mother, uh, lived beside the, the factory and he'd come in very frequently all over the place and he'd come in to me rubbing his ear that he always did and he said, he used to say, I hope somebody knows what's going on around here with a strict, very definite inference that I didn't and that I should. <laughs> what was your biggest fear, Willie, when you took on the role? Uh, I suppose my biggest fear that I'd let them down and not not make a success of it. But what we did w- w- was we, we managed um, to kind of renew our senior management in, the, in those days. And we got into fashion T-shirts, uh, which were very good for, for quite, quite a long time and were ideally equipped for it. And we used to sell to Bloomingdale's and um, Cacherelle in France and all sorts of very big names. Uh, um, and uh, then... Uh, again, there's a guy in in Cork called Michael O'Connell, who uh, was the uh, <clears throat> distributor for Adidas, and Michael kept on at us. Look, you know, we'd like to get three three stripe T-shirts produced in Ireland, so we got yarn spun in Hong Kong and and. Uh, they brought the yarn in, and we made these three-stripe T-shirts. Took them over to Germany, and <clears throat> talk about the thousand dozen a week. We got an order written for those for five hundred thousand three-stripe T-shirts that set us out on the road to making uh, serious sportswear for Adidas. And then we got into uh, uh, fleece uh, jogging suits and sweatshirts and all of that, and that led us into Levi. Uh, uh, sweatshirts and we still had the fashion t-shirt business so was the deal with adidas a major game changer for the 
progress and future of your company back then? It was. It was. It, we be, we became a. That was about 1976, and we were a major producer for uh, for Adidas uh, for about ten years. Uh, in fact, I, I calculated. I think we probably produced about 15 million three-stripe T-shirts, and I don't know a couple of million of jogging suits and so on. Uh, and then, then of course, the <coughs> the recession of the eighties with tremendous inflation, cost inflation, cost pressures, and pressures on prices, and the Adidas business kind of went very flaky on us. So, we're very difficult times uh, in, around the mid eighties. Very difficult times. And as a result of those difficult times. Was that how Fruit of the Loom, in essence, was born? It was because uh, my wife now uh, said to me, who I worked with, said to me one day, uh, you know, what we need here is is a a large US joint venture uh, partner. And that rang a little bell in my head. And uh, I talked to... uh, uh, our director group, including my father uh, and my brothers and father and Mary and uh, so on. And we reckoned, yeah, if we could get a joint venture partner here, it would be really good. And uh, because we're located so close to the border, uh, we felt, you know, uh, it'll be very difficult to attract people here. But my middle brother, Andy, had worked for DuPont in his earlier years, and he had friends and knew his way about uh, Camden in uh, North Carolina. So Andy kind of volunteered that he would go to the U.S. for a year to set up a little office and promote us as a joint venture partner. And uh, he went off with his family and... um, it worked. It worked a treat in that very shortly after he arrived, he met Fruit of the Loom. Fruit of the Loom came here in July '86. Uh, Andy and I went out on the end of August '86, and we went back. Well, he he made several trips to them, and uh, November November '86, we met them, concluded a deal, and we signed, sealed, and delivered that deal in February '87, and. Fruitaloom wanted us actually to get rid of all our existing business. In fact, we thought we could probably do, at one stage, we could do two joint ventures, but uh, uh, that didn't work out. So we quickly ran down our existing business, which was in, in difficulties, and they wanted us to run up a very extensive T-shirt production and sweatshirt production. Um, uh, which which we did, and I must say, one of the key things about that was that we we never had any resident Americans. Um, we the, the people who did all this were all people who were local to Bunkrana, surrounding in the Shown, uh, you know, some in Derry, and that they were all local people who worked for us or who came to work for us, and that gave me tremendous satisfaction that we were able to build an enterprise that, uh, within a few years, was producing a million T-shirts a week and 400,000 sweatshirts. Uh, and was uh, and we ended up with with our own spinning mill in Derry and a sewing plant in Derry. So we got cross border business in uh, nineteen ninety two, ninety three, 
um, employ, eventually employing about 3,000 people with plants in uh, Raffoe, uh, Milford, Dunlow, uh, two or three in Buncrana and two in Derry, and one in Morocco. It was a huge operation when it was fully up and running. It was, and I mean, I think it it, it certainly um, was very exciting for a lot of people because uh, it's only when I read back what you know, kind of uh, as you look back, you don't remember the bad. But the eighties was a very difficult time uh, economically, and for a lot of people, a lot of emigration and that. And yet here we were with a kind of tiger by the tail, where we would. I mean, our our pressure was let's let's get people hired, trained, let's get this production up, let's make it good quality and so on and we ended up with those kind of numbers a million t-shirts a week and uh, 400,000 sweatshirts What do you think of it all when you reflect on it now? Uh, I was very glad that we that, that we did what we did because uh, you know it, it put such thing it, it gave people a lot of hope it trained a lot of people including myself and there we'll take a break business matters in association with ATU Donegal Faculty of Business now is the time to realise your potential by enrolling on the part time degree in business only three years with one evening per week on campus and another online open up your future by contacting the faculty office on 9186206 or visit lyit.ie today you're welcome back. Before the break, Willie was reflecting on Fruit of the Looms 20 years in Donegal and Derry. It gave people a lot of opportunity and while uh, <clears throat> it, it, it lasted for about 20 years and uh, as the IDA will, will tell you, if you get 20 years out of a project, that's not bad. It gave, say, a lot of people a lot of opportunity and uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't reverse what we, what we did. Are you surprised, or were you surprised at the time of how successful the whole thing became? Um, I, yes, I think I was, I was surprised um, until I realised, you know, how how we're doing in the market. And that, and then I realised this is what we got to do, we've got to do here to to be successful. And Fruit of the Loom had, and possibly still does have, although I'm not connected, haven't been for a long time. Uh, Fruit of the Loom had about thirty percent of the entire European market, and of course in America was uh, probably the, at that stage was the largest uh, underwear manufacturer in in the world perhaps and certainly our setup here with the spinning mill in Derry uh, and and the ver- and the uh, knitting bleach and dye cutting sewing and warehousing probably the largest vertical setup of its type in the world at the time you mentioned 3000 jobs when things were at full capacity that's a massive number of people employed at a time when things maybe weren't so good economically uh, yes, yeah, and it's only when I look back on it that that I realise, uh, you know, and, and uh, I realise just that um, this is quite exceptional, and particularly for for a relatively peripheral and isolated area like uh, the, the northwest of Ireland here, and like Donegal. 
just staying with the 80s for a second, Willie, it was around that time that you got a phone call to become involved with the International Fund for Ireland? Yes. And you need to be aware of these phone calls <laughs> because it was sold to be... Well, in fairness, it was sold to be only a few hours a week. Uh, we want you to become a director. Uh, and I did become a... Well, first of all, I asked my boss in the States... I said, look, I've been asked to become this, and I, you know, you're expecting me to work miracles here, kind of thing, uh, along with my fellow folks in in Bunkrana. Uh, and he said, oh well, you'll 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 be able to do that too. So I became a director of the International Fund for Ireland, and then, much to my surprise, they came along and said, we want you to be a chairman. But it'll only take about half a day a week, and we only want you to do it for three years. And that was January 93, and I ended up uh, in February 2005. (laughs) Now, having said that, it was an extremely interesting time. I think the fund did a a lot of good, particularly on the ground, helping local people you know, in in the various programmes, uh, both bo- both in Northern Ireland and the six border counties of the Republic. Just in, in layman's terms, Willie, what was the fund set up for, and how did it help? Well, uh, the fund the fund was basically set up uh, to, uh, pr- I think, the, the words of the founding agreement provi- provide contact and dialogue between unionists. Uh, and nationalists uh, uh, um, throughout Ireland uh, and in layman's terms was about bringing Protestants and Catholics together in uh, u- using largely using economics uh, but we had no sectarian headcounts or things like that you know we'd, we, we would uh, encourage people to uh, to get involved with an economic economic project in a town or a village, particularly in Northern Ireland, where there maybe maybe had been bombing or that, and you know be a local company or group set up uh, where there'd be Protestants and Catholics in, in, involved or uh, in the thing. And as I say, while the fund never conducted a, a, a what we used to call sectarian head counts. Uh, nevertheless, we encouraged people to do the thing on cross-community basis. And of course, one, I mean, apart from the, the, the general politics of the whole thing that stretches back probably a thousand years or whatever, one of the problems in Northern Ireland, and indeed in the, in the Republic, uh, but particularly in Northern Ireland, has been, was, and still, still is, where, you know, if you, if you and I are working together, I'll probably get to know you and you know me and even though we might be different religions or different backgrounds we realise, you know, well your man's a human being or uh, just like me and we've got to get on with things and that. So the idea of the fund wa- was that uh, it involved in a lot of uh, projects hopefully involving both sides of the community but doing something that was economically worthwhile whether that was you know a, a thing like the fund's wider horizons program where it took uh, <clears throat> people from both communities and from the republic uh sent them away on to uh, you know to to the states or sometimes further further afield uh or to belgium or whatever to get uh, training that would help them in uh, in finding jobs, but in the process, 
uh, of doing that, people they bump a, you know the opportunity of getting to know people in the other community. And of course, in a lot of places in Ireland, in Northern Ireland, that didn't happen. So that was one of the things the fund tried to do is create the opportunities for people to get to know one another. And I mean, on a, on a wider level, you know, one I could talk all day about what the fund did, but fund was organised on a north-south basis and one of the one of the key things that it did was in all its programmes where the people who kind of ran the, ran the programmes at the direction of the board and the board was a completely independent board and you're nearly like a judge once you were appointed they couldn't get at you <laughs> and uh, so the board was very independent and, and had its own money from the US, from the EU from Canada, Australia and New Zealand so your own money and we're talking in those days fund, project, fund money would have been about uh, my memory tells me about twenty thousand ster or twenty million sterling a year, you know, which is sizable money, and, and you know we'd cooperate with government, we'd cooperate with with the Ireland funds, which had been set up by Tony O'Reilly and Dan Rooney, uh, and Cooperation Ireland and various other things. So uh, the fund was able to leverage a lot of money. Uh, you know, I think the the numbers to date are uh, fund fund money from the donors was about nine hundred million euro, and they got managed to get a leverage of two to one there. So you're talking about total project fund funding of about two point seven billion euro, which, as my dad used to say, a not inconsequential sum. And that created over a period of time fifty to sixty thousand jobs, particularly in areas that really needed those jobs, and in the process try and bring people together. And well, I wouldn't claim that the fund, uh, you know, was the be all and end all of, of everything. Lots of people have contributed to the development of. Um, uh, bringing things forward in the peace process because of the fund's activity at local level and working through development consultants, you know, who are people who knew their local areas and knew how to put things together. I think it it, it helped quite a bit to create the conditions where, whereby uh, the Good Friday or Belfast Agreement came, came about. Uh, and it, it, although its funding is quite a bit less now, it's still doing that. Have you a view on the political situation in the North at the minute now? <laughs> well, my American friends used to say, that's that's a question above my pay grade. <laughs> uh, but uh, I suppose my view on the general the, the general thing there is when you look, when I look around the world and see the amount of problems that people have right, left and centre and I look at the opportunities that we have here, not the least of which is a climate that will probably survive <laughs> reasonably well and a, a lot of fairly educated people uh, surely to God you know, we could between us work out how to organise things because if we can do that we can bring a lot of good to a lot of people and we shouldn't forget that there's a lot of people uh, who are in considerable need in in this country both north and south and I think that uh, say when you look at the assets that are here what is going on it shouldn't be beyond people to try and figure out uh, a, way, a way forward Wally, what would be your high point during your term 
as chair of the AFA? Um, well, there were several of them, but one one of them was being at Stormont uh, when when the good around the the Good Friday Agreement. That was that was a very key thing. The fund wasn't wasn't directly involved, but I was there, uh, courtesy of a few a few people. Uh, so I was very pleased at that. Uh, the fund had a number of flagship uh, projects, um, one of which was the Shannon Iron Waterway. Uh, and, of course, lots of people wouldn't realise now that uh, there was a, <clears throat> during the sort of bad days of the the, the troubles or uh, whatever, uh, there was a lot of uh, County Fermanagh, Leitrim, Cavan, uh, really devoid of investment and so on. And uh, somebody came up with uh, the idea that if you opened up the old canal between Loch Erne and the Shannon, that it would create a, a tourist waterway that would regenerate the whole area. So the fund uh, put up, first of all, a million uh, sterling, I think, for a feasibility study that demonstrated, yes, if you could do this, uh, then there would be tremendous benefits flow from it. And then the fund contributed five million, uh, and the EU, between the EU and uh, largely the EU, but also then some from the British and Irish governments, uh, to a total project cost of about 33 million. That was opened by uh, the the opening of that of that waterway was uh, one of the one certainly one of the high points that that I can recall. Another high point was the the way that the fund was received in both Washington and Brussels. Uh, you know, I can remember being taken in by John Hume to meet Jacques Delors, uh, who was then. Uh, where Ursula von der Leyen is, and it was a tremendous pleasure to meet meet Delors, and uh, I met President Clinton several times, which is and his wife Hillary Clinton, Senator Hillary Clinton. Uh, those were, those were great times, particularly because a lot of people were supporting uh, what the fund was doing, and the fund in turn was supporting what a lot of people were doing on the ground. Well, I know you are still extremely busy. These days, you are an independent advisor to a number of companies. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Uh, well, <laughs> I don't know that, that I'm just terribly busy the, these days, but I, uh, <clears throat> I've spent the last six years been involved. Sorry, I going back a bit... Um, when I was at MIT, uh, a mutual friend from Dublin introduced me to a guy called John Teeling. And uh, the three of us and an MIT professor friend who unfortunately has passed away now in the last couple of years, uh, the four of us met in a bar between halfway between Harvard and MIT called the Plough and Stars, uh, which was owned, and I think still is owned, by an Irishman from Dublin called Peter O'Malley. And uh, we met there, and John Teeling and I met there, and we've been firm friends ever since. We looked a lot at how Irish whiskey, how bad, we, as young guys, we, we thought 
Irish whiskey has been marketed very badly here. We could, we could do a lot better. And, uh, the, you know, we, we, John did a lot on the history of Irish whiskey because Irish whiskey used to be the premier whiskey in America uh, from, see, from the 18th, 1850s on about to the early 1900s. It used to be the premier whiskey of the world. And, uh, uh, through prohibition, uh, various political things like the War of Independence, the Economic War, and so on, uh, the Irish whisky industry had gone right down until government, fortunately, put three of the family companies together in 1966 under the brand, under the brand Irish Distillers, and they. Um, built a, a, a new distillery uh, at, at Middleton, which gave them a good cost base and, and, and a good liquid and, and so on. Uh, but it really developed into a monopoly. And then John Teeling uh, founded Cooley Distillery in 1987. Uh, when Cooley started uh, selling, um, it broke the monopoly that was had been created uh, almost inadvertently by Irish distillers and um, w- John had said to me uh, had said to me uh, sorry I should have, should have said when I came back from MIT a very good friend of mine who is actually a member of the Watt family uh, said to me that uh, Iriscott which was the successor of Andrew A. Watt which in 1880 Five or eighty-six had been the largest distillery in these islands in Derry, uh, and with the brand name Turconnell, brand names Turconnell and Inishowen and a few others. A friend of mine who was actually a member of the Watt family said said to me, "Look, you could get uh, the brand name Turconnell, brand names Turconnell and Inishowen." So I got these brand names. I I fiddled about trying to get. Uh, get whiskey, uh, buy whiskey but of course Irish distillers had a monopoly and they wouldn't sell and then John Teeling founded Cooley Distilleries and he had a very good friend so he said why don't you roll in Turconnell and all of that into Cooley Distillery and uh, I became a director and I was founding shareholder uh, and uh, Cooley then went through thick and thin but eventually and uh, one of my one of my jobs was to find a strategic partner for Cooley. I had several false starts, several jil- several jiltings, if that's the right word, at the altar. But I finally found Jim Beam, and Jim Beam did a deal with us, uh, bought Cooley for a reasonably good price, which I think impressed a lot of people, and. Uh, that was in 2011, and that must have taken. Well, it coincided with Irish whiskey starting on an upward, or, or continuing on an upward track. But it, I think, with the price and the publicity that we got, um, I think a lot of people became seriously interested in Irish whiskey. Uh, so, f- from four distilleries, including. Two, two, Cooley and Kilbegan were two owned by us, and then uh, Irish Distillers owned Middleton and Bushmills. So there were four distilleries in Ireland, and there's now probably coming up on 45 or 50. So uh, what we call uh, this is a new golden age, and we'd like to think that John Teeling and I had a hand in this, going back to that meeting in the Plough and Stars. I was just going to make that point, Willie. You actually ended up doing what you talked about doing back in the early 70s? 
Uh, we did. Uh, I mean, John's a very go-getting kind of a guy, and uh, see, he and I have been very good friends all all, the, all those years. But we did we did uh, end up doing what what we said we'd do. And a funny thing is that these days, and for a long time, neither John nor I drink. Uh, and um, when we still had the Kilbegan Distillery. John, on a Saturday night just before Christmas, he invited uh, a lot of people who'd been involved in the old whiskey museum that was kept alive there in Kilbegan uh, for a Saturday night dinner. And as always in these things, there was a guy there who had too much of the, the whiskey. And he started into John, he heard John didn't drink, and he started into him giving out, giving out yards about... Uh, how come you're running a distillery and you can, and you don't drink? And John tried to fend him off as best he could, uh, but he, he wouldn't have, uh, wouldn't take a, take no for an answer. And John said, "You see that guy with the beard over there? That's Willie. He's a director here, and he doesn't drink either." And that only fueled the fire because he said, "How come you have two people that that, that don't drink and are supposed to be running this this distillery?" And John said, "Listen," he says, "There was a time when Willie and I produced more women's knickers than anybody else in Ireland, but so far as I know, neither of us ever wore a pair." <laughs> I told that story to uh, Frank McNally. Frank McNally of the Irish Times rang me up one day, one day um, a few months after that when we had won Cooley had won World Distiller or European Distiller of the Year which a great uh, accolade for us to win so Frank rang up and was talking about this and he said here neither you two guys don't drink so it just out of curiosity or not just out for a bit of crack I said uh, you know this well he printed it in the paper <laughs> So, <laughs> I never heard the end of it for a couple of months. It is quite a contrast, underwear and t-shirts to whiskey. It certainly is, but it's one I'm quite willing to live with. Well, I'm sure you've met very successful business people and come across many successful businesses in your many years in business yourself. Is there a standout business or a standout person in business that you look up to or admire? Um, well, uh, I would have to say it has nothing to do with me, but uh, if I if I had to admire, I do admire uh, Warren Buffett because my former boss and still very good friend in the U.S., John Holland, um, fruit went through very difficult days. Um, uh, at the latter end of things and John was brought in by the banks to uh, rescue the place uh, which he did uh, by selling it to Warren Buffett uh, in Berkshire Hathaway and uh, Fruitaloom is now a successful company owned by uh, Berkshire Hathaway and indeed uh, uh, what we did here where we had uh, 3,000 people I think now in Morocco which was where, where um, the people who came after us migrated um, through the loom, as did all the industry, um, to where we had set up in Morocco. Um, 
if I had to admire somebody, I'd say Warren Buffett is, is a man I admire greatly. And finally, Wally, what does the future hold for yourself and some of your business interests? Um, well, I'm 76. Um, I, ho- I hope I can be of assistance to uh, va- various people uh, for a while yet. And as long as I'm healthy and, and able to uh, able to work, I... I, I um, I look forward to uh, not not killing myself, but c- keeping myself involved because uh, <clears throat> it's a bit like um, I, I I think over the years I've developed uh, a knack of if somebody asks me a, about a problem, I may not be able to answer that problem, but I have a very good knack of finding who would answer the problem. And indeed, my brother Andy told me a story quite recently where uh, when we built our spinning mill uh, for Fruit of the Loom uh, outside Derry, and the reason we built it outside Derry was uh, it needed to be done just at our absolute rate of knots. We couldn't go through planning planning process just wasn't wasn't possible uh, and in those days uh, in Northern Ireland the government could uh, was its own planner so they could go right ahead and uh, we, uh, we, we, we ended up building what was the largest spinning mill of its type in the world at that time uh, and, and most efficient but uh, <clears throat> there was one a guy who worked for Fruit of the Loom uh, had charge of about eight of these mills, and he wasn't one bit uh, pleased that one of them would be co- uh, coming to Ireland. And uh, he was talking to my brother in the States uh, about this, and he said, you know, Andy, he said, what happens if you get a problem there? He says, if I have a problem here, I know 40 guys who can fix this. What would you do? And Andy, but Andy said to him, well, Frank, if I have a problem with this new mill, I know a guy in the States who knows 40 guys. <laughs> so uh, I would say that one of the th- things I have learned is if I can't answer answer a problem, which is probably most times, I, I can probably find who can answer the problem. Willie McCarter, former managing director with Fruit of the Loom, former chair with AFA and independent advisor. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us on Business Matters. You're most welcome, Kieran. Thank you. Well, that's our lot for this edition of Business Matters. Thanks to my guest, William McCarter. Thanks to Kenneth Wilson on sound. And thanks to you for listening. If you'd like to get in touch with the programme, drop an email to businessmatters at highlandradio.com. Business Matters in association with ATU Donegal Faculty of Business. Now is the time to realise your potential by enrolling on the part-time degree in business. Only three years with one evening per week on campus and another online. Open up your future by contacting the faculty office on 9186206 or visit lyit.ie today.